Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 974, with Doug Zeif. Well, look, controlling inventory is only one thing, one part of it. You have to have high sales to have high profit. And so you need to know the other, the whole other end of it as well, right? Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program this is something that's never been done before this 60-day event is at no cost to you but it's not for everyone fred langley ceo of restaurant systems pro will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the restaurant system pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants fred will teach you recipe costing cards guidance in your books for accounting cash control sales forecasting checklist budgeting for the entire year scheduling for profit it more butts and seats and that's not it if you are interested in this head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp that's rsp for restaurant systems pro www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash rsp this episode is brought to you by Zinch. For restaurants, large costs can pop up fast, but the traditional loan process can be too slow. And that's why I need to tell you about Zinch. They are a direct lender that makes the financing process quick, convenient, and accessible. Zinch can fund up to $250,000 in less than two days. And all you have to do is fill out a simple online application and provide a copy of your four most recent bank statements and you can get approved within 24 hours. Right now, Zinch is waiving application fees for my listeners, a value of $250. Go to financingthatworks.com to get pre-qualified and see how much financing you could get with Zinch. Loans made or arranged pursuant to California Finance Lenders Law License. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Principal in the Next Hospitality Advisors and Equal Measure Partners, Doug Zeif. Doug, my man, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am unstoppable most times. Yeah, man. I'm super excited to have you here. Burt Rappaport, uh, I reached out to him. I said, hey, Bert, I'm coming back to South Florida. Like, You know this market way better than I do. I don't want to be the one to decide who gets made an example of. Who do you think needs to be made an example of? And you were the first name on the list that he shot me. And uh, you're here today. We made it happen. Thank you for doing this on last minute notice. And I'm super excited to dive into your story because you have an incredible career, man. Like, the names just going through your port, like your 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 bio this this afternoon, trying to prepare for today's conversation. You know, Cheesecake Factory, uh, incredible incredible career in the hotel world and in advising people. There's mm-hmm. so much to your resume. I can't wait to dissect it and pull it apart and find out what knowledge is in that noggin of yours. But let's get that motivational, inspirational, ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? My success quote is: If you keep doing what you keep doing, what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. If you keep doing what you keep doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. Dive into that. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. But well, why is that you know, so many people are kind of stuck in how they do things. And they're not really looking forward as to how do we, you have to adapt. This industry, this hospitality industry, which is mostly about people, whether it's guests mm-hmm. or partners partners yeah. or employees, mm-hmm. you know, is all about pivoting. 
And if you don't pivot, like if you didn't pivot during the pandemic and you didn't figure out how to do, as an example, QR code menus, mm-hmm. right? Or touchless bathrooms, right? Yep. If you didn't figure out how to do any of that, you, you probably died, yep. right? And so anything that we do, process procedurally process-driven, anything that's process-driven, these processes need to change. This industry is the one industry, especially the food and beverage part of it, the one industry where everything is almost variable almost every day. Yeah. Look, the bricks on the carrots and the tomatoes are, is different from one order to the next order that you receive at your back door. Yeah. So you have to be ready to ready to roll every single day and be able to have a new idea for what might be what might have been an old problem. You need to have a new idea on how you're going to get to where you need to get to without doing the same old thing you've been always doing. Yeah. And kind of what you're saying is is bringing to my mind, I don't know who said it or what exactly the quote is, but it's this idea that if you're not growing, you're you're falling behind. You're shrinking. Yeah. Because the world is moving ahead. (laughs) The world is moving ahead. I mean, look, you can can use the pandemic in so many instances about our industry, about how if you didn't pivot, you didn't change, you kept doing things the same way. If you didn't shrink your menu. Yeah. If you didn't learn how to bring staff in when there was no staff out there to have. If you didn't change your incentives and change your wages and change your benefit, change your benefits. If you didn't do any of that, you died. Yeah. You died. Yep. Or or it might have been you you survived, but you barely survived, right? Not for much longer. So (laughs) you have to you have to be able to pivot quickly in this business and be open to how quickly everything is changing and that really is driven by a lot of technology yeah and how you know in these days this day and age you got to figure out how to do more with less yeah right and that is relative to people mostly automation technology everything right because if you're not doing it your competitors are doing it and they're going to be able to attract better talent because they're going to have the extra cash flow to pay those people it's it's a you you can't emphasize it enough you got to grow man great way to get this thing started so Almost forty years in this industry. Are you approaching forty years in the <laughs> no, industry? I, mean, it's, I think it's longer than that, actually. Longer. Yeah, but you know, I started out as a cook in, uh, in an amusement park in Queens, New York, and and worked my way up to baking bagels through How high old school. Were you when you started, I was fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. Yep. My family wasn't in the business. My father was a high school language teacher, and my mother was a a bookkeeper for the city of New York, and we lived in Queens, New York, and you know, I knew it early on that I needed. Uh, independence from them as far as finances go. Mm-hmm. And so I started working what, what, at, really at 13. you learn that you needed this? Why do you think you needed that? Because I wanted things that yeah. they weren't giving me. Okay. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and they had their own wherewithal issues, right? Being, not being wealthy or even being middle class at the time. Um, so I wanted to have my own money and I wanted to do my own thing and I want to do my own things. <laughs> yeah. And so I got hired in an amusement park as a cook. I actually applied as a ride operator because my friends were doing that and they were meeting girls. Yeah. And I said, that's great. That influences decisions. I'll do that too. (laughs) And then when I applied, they said, listen, all those right operator jobs are full for the summer. Um, If you want to do something, we can put you in the kitchen. I'm like, I'll, I'll take anything if you'll pay me. Yeah. And the good news was, is that I was in this like fast, casual, you know, amusement park where I was, you know, I had a, like a griddle and a, and I cooked burgers and dogs and sliced corned beef and pastrami sandwiches, but I could talk to the guests over the counter. Nice. And I was an extrovert. Even at 13, I yeah. was an extrovert. I wanted to talk to people. And it kind of started th- things for me. I was like, oh, you know, when the ride operator job opened up, I said, you know what? I'm actually good right here. Yeah, I like you know, I was very into sports uh, uh, and I was a very good athlete. So the high, hand-eye coordination required to do all of that and be yeah. able to conduct do multiple things at one time came really easy to me. 
And then after that job, when I got into high school, I started baking bagels, and I used to work the power shift Friday and Saturday mornings from 2 a.m. to 10 a.m., rolling dough, boiling and baking ba- racks, shelves and shelves and shelves oh, of bagels for the, bagels for the rush. They're so good. Um, we worked in two bagel uh, places that were owned by the same people, and I did that all through, basically all through high school. How, I, how long was your proofing process? I can't talk to you about that. Okay. I still have an NBA. No, I'm kidding. The Days, ba- hours? No, no, hours, hours. Yeah. I would roll the dough at 2 a.m., okay. and I would start baking at about 5.30 a.m. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. yeah. Good. So, um, and the first racks would come out right around 6 o'clock, and, the, and then the rush would start about 6.45. Got it, got it. Um, so at what point did you say to yourself, like, this is my career. This is what I want to do. So it took me a while to get there, actually. Okay. That's a good question. It took me a while to get there. I... So I went away to school. I got a job in a restaurant um, as a cook trainee. I'm going to, I think minimum wage at the time was 86 cents an hour. Damn. And that's what I was getting paid. Tips? Um, nope. In the kitchen? Nope. Uh, not we in those days. We weren't tip pulling back then? No, not in those days. <laughs> um, but it was a restaurant called The Library in Buffalo, New York. And the team there was unbelievable. Everybody. The managers fostered this such a sense of teamwork and loving each other and family that that's where the business really kind of got my blood was so i worked my way up from cook trainee to cook to kitchen manager i served i bartended i assistant managed a little bit my senior year uh before i went out to california and that was where it really kind of became ingrained in, in me. I'm sure with the, the sports background too, the idea of it takes a team, and I mean, just it, it like makes me think of culture, the importance of culture, going all the way back, like we're a family, and like what's going through your mind as I'm saying this. Yeah, it's it's well it, to me, it's I think it's one of the experiences I think of the most fondly. Uh, I still remember the managers, Joey Peters and Al Party. They were amazing, and we had just a. We, you know, there was no pretense in the restaurant. The serve, if if the food set up a little bit too long, it was okay for the cook to run the food out to the table. Yeah, right. I we, you know, I had one hand on the grill and one hand on the dish machine. You know, I mean, it was it was that kind of place, and um, and it was it was really a family. I mean, we would sit around, to, to, you know, afterwards throw some a few bucks in the register, have a couple of pitchers of beer, and then we'd all go out to breakfast and come home on. You know, it's at 7.30 in the morning and, go and sleep until 1 o'clock in the afternoon then go play sports. To be young, right? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so how like how old were you at this point when you start to really think that you want to do this? For oh, it wasn't, it wasn't there. Oh, okay. So I went out to California to play baseball, and um, that didn't go the way I wanted it to. Um, and then I got into a management training program because this is really the business that I knew. What right? year is it now at this point? 1977. Okay. I got into this business that I thought I knew, and I got into a management training program with a very large company in a in their Mexican restaurant division. Okay. Um, and the training was pretty good uh, for the most part. I was very corporatized; very it was very bureaucratic in in a lot of ways. Uh, they moved me very quickly from Southern California to Washington D.C., um, and I was running. Basically, I was the only manager in two two restaurants in the same building, both doing in the in those days huge volume. I was living next door, at the motel next door to the restaurants for a period of months. I kept asking California for help for manpower. Can People, we name the name of the restaurant, or are we rather not? No, I'd rather not okay. at the moment. Yep. Um, if you don't mind. No. Um, well, actually, I, I could actually. Um, it was called the Red Onion and and Barley Mo. So there's a prime rib house upstairs and a Mexican restaurant on the ground floor, on the water in Washington D.C. on on the channel. Got it. And they uh, they refused to send me help, you know. And I was working 
140 hours a week by myself in two restaurants. And finally I said, I'm out of here. And I was offered a job as an assistant. 20 hours a day? It was, yeah. I mean, I was was living next door. I really could never leave the restaurant, right? Um, I mean, I learned a lot too at the same time. And I learned how to use people for, I don't know I mean use in that way. I mean, use people for getting stuff done that I couldn't do in my 20-hour day, so to speak. Look, and I was 24 at the time, yeah. and I was young. I, I mean, I, I never looked at my watch unless I wasn't getting the support I needed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's really how it is, how it was. So I got hired. I was very fortunate. And this was like the most integral experience in my all of my experience. Uh, was I was fortunate to get hired as assistant manager at a small chain of steakhouses down, based down here in Miami called Bodega Steakhouse. Okay. Um, it was owned and owned by the founder of Burger King, David Edgerton, and his VP of Ops at the time, David Talty, was the president of the company. And these guys had taken this, their, all the controls that they put into Burger King and, and fast food, and they put him into this steakhouse chain. And we were very successful. And it was, okay, so this is now 1979, 1980. We had like Argentinian and Chilean wines on the wine wow. list before anybody even heard very of Argentina or Chile. Yeah. Yeah, right? We had an amazing, a guy that did our wine list, uh, Chip Cassidy, w- w- was amazing. I feel like I know that name. Well, he's a very, he was a very famous sommelier and wine salesperson uh, for many, many years. Chip passed away a few years ago. And, you know, he was friends so i was i ended up becoming a gm for them and you know it was the best gm job really i had ever had but i learned the most the most about controlling profit and cost from those guys because of their burger king background Mm. that came in i mean it's come in so handy to me over the years we used to count every slice of prime rib every steak every shrimp every baked potato every night and reconcile it against the the POS cash register at the time. Wow. And so we knew if we were missing one one baked potato, right? Damn. If one baked potato went out and didn't get accounted for, we would know it, okay. right? And, I mean, you could look at it today and it was a little bit anal, I would say. At the so, time. I mean, I think at the, at the minimum, you should be doing a weekly inventory, right? Where you're doing a daily inventory. We were doing a, we called it a, um, I forget what we call it, a daily inventory, DIS, yeah. daily inventory system. Um, and but we had a salad bar also, so we used to inventory all of that as well. Wow. So we knew what, what I knew what my salad bar cost was per person. Yeah, almost now you know every your day. shrinkage, like because like, okay, yeah. So so would you say that this is like the number one thing that you need to do if you want to have high profit is controlling your inventory? Well, look, controlling inventory is only one thing, one part of it. You have to have high sales to have high profit, yeah. right? And so you need to know the other, the whole other end of it as well. Before right? we get into sales, though, what else can you teach us about what they taught you about controlling costs? Well, they they taught me everything. They they taught me that normally you buy a case of potatoes at, and then let's just say that they're eighty count potatoes, right? Yeah. When we wash them in the morning, we count them, and you know if you got shorted a potato or if the count was heavy, a count was light. But we would yield out. We would yield. A case of potatoes, so we know that when, at the end of the night, our counts would be accurate. We used to count. We used to buy 16, 20 count shrimp, right? The average is eighteen per box okay. per pound. Sorry, not per box. And we would count when we boil the shrimp for the peel and eat shrimp. We would count the shrimp. How many did we get out of this box, right? And then we would again adjust our yield 
to not be 18. It might have been 16 once or 20 once or 21. Who knew? But so our accounts would all even out at the end of the night. Got it. So we knew where everything was going. At the end of every month, we used to inventory all of our china glass and, silver and flatware, right? Now, that can be a daunting task, right? You got all that flatware around the restaurant. We just dump it all in a bus tub. We had a factor for how, mu- how much a fork weighed, a knife weighed, a, yeah. a, sp- we a spoon it. weighed. Yeah. We weighed it. Uh, we counted all the plates. We, the, all the glasses were in glass racks, 20 per, or 25 per glass rack, depending on the glass. And we would just count everything. And yeah. I remember running around the restaurant trying to find one of the, in the old days, <laughs> one of those pewter bread plates. <laughs> I, I knew that I had it. I didn't know where it was, and I didn't want to report my numbers until you found it. Until you I found it, because the, the, the president David used to used to certain if you know in those days we had like telefaxes. Yeah, and he used to send your numbers around every week to for every all the GMs to see all ten GMs to see. And if you had a gamification a, too, if man. you had a, Damn, a number that was time. out of line, he would write you a note on there, and every GM in the company would see it. So right? now it's not just about like your personal, but it's there's a little bit of ego here because you don't want to be you're comparing yourself to yeah, others. I never had any circles. Just so you know. yeah. <laughs> in three years of being a GM in that company, so I never had any circles. I found that bread plate, by the way. Awesome. The the porter had pop, propped open the kitchen door to dry the floor with it, ups, <laughs> turned it upside down, and propped the door open oh with it. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> but uh, I mean, what's going through my mind listening to you talk right now? It's so important to be able to to you know controlling profit and cost with inventory and all these things and just counting and knowing where you are versus what you're selling to make sure that you're getting the most out of your, 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 you know, you're paying for all this inventory. You want to get the most return out of that. Right. But how the hard part, it's not knowing what to do. It's getting people to buy into doing it and to actually doing it accurately. Like, like you said, like you cared so much, you wanted to like go search the, the whole building for this bread plate. Cause you were that interested in doing the job well. So what is the secret? And I think you already answered the question, but what are the things that this, this group did to get people to buy in to actually do the work? Well, they made it competitive. You know, and that was one thing. But these days, that's not quite so easy, right? Uh, it's a different breed of, of person that's working and managing restaurants these days. And probably there's got to be 30 times the number of restaurants today than there were in people 1980, were, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's for us and what I do in my company, it's about incentive. Mm. Um, my people get incentivized on hitting their cost targets. We have a recipe management system. We have an inventory management system in our in our company, and they have to hit their targets. If they don't hit the targets, they don't get paid their incentive. That's kind of how it is. What are the incentives? Cash. Nice. That's cash. Uh, so you have recipe management. You said you have what else? Oh, your inventory management, recipe management. We have. We also have labor. You know, labor. We have a whole tool for managing labor and schedules and not allowing people to punch in early or punch out late without a manager override. We put in the schedules. You, you, get, you can only work your schedule without getting an override. We, you, look, there's more science and math to this industry than people give it credit for. Oh That's gosh. why there's so many failures because yep. people, I have a good meatball recipe. I'm going to open a restaurant and they're going to fall on their, they're yep. going to fall on their tail, yep. right? Yep. And the reason they're going to fall on their tail is because there's a whole lot of other stuff around that meatball recipe that you have to, I mean, look, how you buy, how you purchase. The relationship right? with the vendors. Well, the relationship yeah. to contracting yeah. and, you know, whether you're part of a what's called a GPO or not, you know, how you contract for certain pricing. 
I mean, all of that, even if you're one restaurant, you can do all of that. Yeah. Most people don't really even know that. They don't even yeah. know to ask those questions. Yeah. I'm very interested in, in your suite of tools and how you're building the systems and how you're choosing what systems to use over other systems because there's so many options out there. I want to shelf that for when we get to current sure. time. Sure. Uh, are there any other big lessons that you learned? This is the Bodega Steakhouse. This is where you're learning yeah. all this stuff, yeah. right? Any other big lessons that we haven't t- touched on? Uh, mentors that taught you something that just has stuck with you? Like anything like this before we move on in your career? Because like, we have a lot of career to cover 40 plus years yeah i i would say that the i never really had that kind of a mentor um until until later or not well, ever. you know i guess you can say one of my mentors is a guy named john sirielli and that's later in life okay uh, i was after can, way after cheesecake thing, if you yeah. Will, yeah i mean look a lot of things i learned in bigger companies was how not to do things mm. right and how i wouldn't do them if they were mine and how to take care of people and not to make it all about yourself and make it all about everybody else. Mm. Um, so for me, kind of putting myself in the subverting myself and my id, my ego for almost everybody else that I'm around, yeah. whether it's my family, our managers, certainly our guests and our team, I, I generally have gone about my business by putting almost everybody else before me. Because I figure it'll flow down to me eventually. Yes. If it does, if it goes well. Yeah. If it doesn't go well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of what I've learned. Oh, look, there's a lot of you know like I've read a lot of books. You know, whether it's principles of central leadership or seven habits or even one minute manager, which was still which I still talk to people about today. And huge lesson. It's a thirty year old book or more. What Jan Carlson did with that. But to me, it's it's about. Build, everything that you do in a, in a business is about building a culture. Mm. And it's that culture that speaks to your people and your guests. It all it all kind of flows downhill. Yeah. When you know, did you learn about this? Well, I learned about it. Un, unfortunately, I learned about it by being, not, and look, I'm not a victim, but by being exposed to it in, in the opposite port, part of that. When did this opposite side happen? Is this, is, is it, have you were to skip over that or is that to come? Well... It's to come. It's to come. Okay. We don't yeah. need to mention uh, the name if you don't need to. But maybe maybe tell me now before, so we don't know which, which where well, it was. Well, it's Cheesecake. Oh, it's, it was it Cheesecake? Yeah, I, it's I was, Cheesecake. So that was bad things that happened that, Well, it was, yeah. it was just not to... It was just not to... It wasn't productive emotionally for me. Okay. I was going to be honest. When it was I, productive financially. When I saw Cheesecake on your on your resume, I was like, this is probably where he got his, like, his master's because of... Uh, well, no, they don't teach you anything. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I mean, for the most part. Most of these companies, big companies, don't teach you anything to, to. They don't teach you anything that you need to know on how to run your own business. Okay, they want you to know how to do your job. They want you to know how you do your job with their playbook. Okay. Period. Yeah. Right. I mean, three of the, three of the four presidents in Cheesecake Factory after I left were people that I hired and trained, and not one of them could ever do a lease. Even when they left Cheesecake Factory, they they had never seen a lease before. Mm. Right. Yeah. They. So. Most of these companies, well, and, it, and this is not a slam on Cheesecake Factory, by the way. This is the way corporate America works yeah, the in culture. the restaurant business. Yeah. They don't teach you what you need to know how to mo- how to run your own business. They teach you what you knew what you need to know how to run their business. You're a cog in their the way. Wheel. You're right. You're yeah. a cog in the wheel. Yeah. So, but from like a, a manufacturing industrial approach, that is the most efficient way it, to to like. I feel like from like a, a industrial approach, right, where you're like. Where you're looking at a machine and you're looking at people as parts in that machine, yep. and that's 
that's kind of one of the issues with the industrial age is that it, it was it was only served the people at the top. Right. Well, and it's it's still that way in a lot of places yeah. too, right? I mean, look, I built the mechanism for Cheesecake Factory to to a to f- do the first large menu. Yeah. B to be able to execute it, prep it, execute it, and then replicate it. I built all of that. I also built the procurement end of Cheesecake Factory, the whole procurement department. All of that, and I did all the new restaurant openings, right? So, um, fortunately, I was on the road a lot. So, so we have a lot to cover when we get to the Cheesecake Factory. Yeah, we do. But I don't want to sell you short on Bodega Steak because it sounds like this is where you did get your MBA. I got a a good portion of my MBA at at Bodega. And a lot of it came... A lot of my MBA came after, even after Cheesecake, and after, and when I was in Blackstone. Okay, you know, so yep. So, um, as far as Bodega, I mean, this is mid eighties, uh, early to mid eighties. When when did you leave Bodega? Is there any well, nineteen eighty one? They sold the company. Okay, and I went to work for the new company, um, opening restaurants. I went on the road for about eighteen months, and that was miserable. Okay, when did you join Cheesecake Factory? 1985. 19, okay, so mid-80s mid there. Where was the Cheesecake Factory when you came on board? It had two restaurants. Damn. How many Cheesecake Factories are there today? I don't have any idea. I mean, Over I, 200. A lot. <laughs> There's Over a lot, 200. man. That's crazy. So what was it about the Cheesecake Factory? I mean, unless it, unless it makes sense to stop, I don't want to move too fast. Is there anything that we're skipping over that's no. a big part of your Well, story? no. Yeah, well, so, yes, there's a part of it. So I, uh, I opened my own restaurant in Delray Beach, Florida, okay. with some partners after the first year. I was bought out, and I went to Europe for a year. In a good way or a bad way? No, like no, you, no. It was good. It was like good. You had, where you're so successful, you were able to. The restaurant was profit. successful, but I was I was ready to get be out of this partnership. Oh, okay. Uh, so I took a year off and went to Europe. Okay, good for you. And immersed myself in cuisine and and wine and culture, and really was my first trip to Europe. And I was 27. Damn. And I was really. I've still yet to be to Europe. Eye opening to me, right? Yeah. I've been now. I've been a hundred times since then, but. Um, it was really eye-opening to me. I mean, I I picked grapes for Dom Perignon Harvest. I did wow. some great stuff yeah, when I was cool. over there. Yeah. So um, well, the name of your uh, Delray Beach restaurant? Scarlett O'Hara's. Scarlett O'Hara's. Uh, how long? You were there for you. You opened it and you had it going for about a year before you sold yeah, it? Yeah, I was there a little over a year. Yeah. Any key le- this is your first time being an owner. Yeah. Any key lessons, aha moments? Yeah, pick looking, your partners differently. Looking at back. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not about dragging names. No, uh, I'm not going to talk about it. I, um, I, but not, can we learn from like the what? What's your advice uh, beyond pick your partners? No, I mean, really have a good, have a really good business plan. Know your partner. Know who your partners are. Know what their, what their role and their contribution is going to be. Know what you're specifically define what everybody's role is. And basically stick to your li- swim lane. Right? Is there, is there, so yeah, stay in your lane. Uh, Find partners that compliment you is what yep. I'm hearing yep. there. Uh, is there something that you would have done differently, uh, like a like a checklist item, like that that you know now that you would have done to like save yourself then? I was I didn't need to be saved um, or to prevent a, a headache. Then you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I think. Look, I think at the end of the day, all of this is about people, and honestly, the business couldn't support my salary after the, when we get, went into our second summer. So it was logical that they bought me out, mm-hmm. and I was I was really good with that because I was ready. It didn't for me it, emotionally. It didn't fulfill what it need what I thought it was going to fulfill in me. What was it missing, or what were you missing? It was missing really. It was missing the sense of ownership. I was working my tail off. It was it was it was certainly a learning experience for me. I loved the people that we we had on our team there, um, but at the end of the day, it wasn't. 
it wasn't a quality enough experience for me to want to stay with it. So when they asked me if I would either A, uh, take the summer off or B, be bought out, I, off, I, I said, fine, make me an offer. Uh, then I said, "Make me another offer," and <laughs> and they finally did, and I and I and I walked away with my head held high. Finally, nice. and, and this was enough to get you a year where you could just kind of yeah. go explore. That's yeah, that's it amazing. was good. That's awesome. Yep. So w- w- when I came back, uh, Bert actually put me in touch with a guy named Ned Grace, who okay. was the founder of Capital Grill and Boogaboo Creek Steakhouse. And Ned had two restaurants at the time in, name, in yeah. Rhode Island. And um, is he still kicking around? He is. He's actually lives in Palm Beach. Uh, I would love to get him on the show. Uh, he's been referred to us before. His name is I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Just throwing well, it out. There. Well, <laughs> we, we know, he and I know each other. Um, right. They were regulars in my restaurant high dive. He oh, and really? his wife were yeah. nice. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, he I, I he hired me as a consultant after 45 days when me getting back from Europe and starting up there. He offered me a full-time job as the director of operations for his restaurants. And and actually, that's where he and Bert kind of... He and Bert were really good friends. They were on the board of Johnson & Wales together. Okay. And that's where they split... They parted ways because Bert was upset that Ned offered me a position. Oh. Um, Bert didn't have anything for me to do. <laughs> um, but uh, he, and, he and Bert parted ways at that point. But... You know, I found that that environment wasn't also conducive for me to feel good about myself, feel good about what I was doing. It was one way or the highway, and there was no, like, discussion or dialogue about how things were, were going to evolve or how they how culturally, how what kind of a company we wanted to have. You know, you're bringing up something that I've noticed just through talking to so many people like yourself and hearing these stories, people of 40-plus years of experience in the industry, and I think it's something that's changed over time. But there was almost, a, it seems like, an air of, like, possessivism. Like, but like, if you were a restaurateur and you found somebody, like, you almost, like, put your, like your stake, like, your flag in that person. Like, I found this person. They're mine. Hands off. I don't think that's a healthy mindset. Really, but I think we've gotten a lot away from that. And it's it's more about now, like, okay, I found you. How can I help you? Who can I connect you to? Where can I send you? Hopefully, you stay with me. But I know that if I make it about you, you're more you're more likely to stick with me, right? Like, right. So, well, I, you say that there's truth to that statement. Yeah, there is truth to that, and actually, that's kind of how I've lived the the latter half of the of my adult life is by putting other people on the pedestal. You know, we my partner at High Dive, Jeremy Bierman, who is the, probably the most unbelievable cook. I've ever worked with and I've worked with a lot of really good chefs mm. Jeremy and he's a great guy and a very smart guy also you know we did high dive really I put to high dive together and put the partnership together just because I felt he needed a bigger stage to cook on mm. like if you went to our website the high dive website you wouldn't see my name mentioned anywhere I, and that's not because I I wanted it and we all I got voted out that's because I didn't want it to be about me I wanted it to be about him yeah. and his background mm-hmm. and my career has kind of taken me to a place where I'm all about paying it forward. Yeah. You know, I just finished lunch with the chancellor of a college that I t- I'm an adjunct professor at. Okay. You know, I I was willing to do the job for free to teach hospitality for free. Are you still teaching there? Yeah. Make sure you tell them about this podcast for me. <laughs> I will. Um, and, you know, I was willing to do it for free. And then they started sending me checks and I started donating the checks back to the university as a donation, you know, because I, 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 I really want to bring people into this industry, have them have a good experience in this industry, because this is an industry that, that abuses people. Look, we're the only industry in the world, the United States is the only country in the world 
where the guests pay a large portion of the salary of the people that work in it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Via yeah. a gratuity. Yeah. Right? I mean, nowhere else in the world does that work that way. It's a cultural issue. Yeah, it's a cultural issue. It's it's a legal issue. It's There's a whole bunch of... It's an issue. You know, it's a, <laughs> I think it's more legislative than anything, yeah. but yes, it is an issue. Yeah. And, you know, so when we opened here, as an example, it truly, I paid everybody the minimum wage without the tip credit because I knew we were going to have trouble staffing. I, I also put a a float out there that we were going to send the team member of the year to Italy, all expenses paid for two people, which we just voted on that three weeks ago. And we have a, a, one of our servers that his girlfriend are going in wow, June. That's amazing. And so this is a, an industry that's been notoriously abusive to its people, uh, overworked, underpaid, below the standard of living kind of pay. And there's a lot there that needs to change. Yeah. But at the same time, culturally, Making people feel good about their contribution to your establishment or to what you're doing is a whole nother story. We have evolved. We have evolved to putting other people ahead of us and not being so possessive about so-and-so being my guy or my woman or my girl, whatever it is, yeah. my chef, right? You, we have to help people get to their next level of expertise mm-hmm. without being in their way and without really kind of the possessive nature of all of that, I think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you for getting into the detail. And uh, I'd love to know about how we can go into the future and like I, I, we've identified the issue. Maybe we can wrap up with what's the plan to get away from the old way of doing things. If, if, you know, if you could coach us into like the future, what would that look like? Uh, maybe you can answer that question now or we, we can just get it over. Well, <laughs> I can't answer the question now, but it takes, you know, the expression that it takes a village. Yeah. Well, it takes a country yeah. here because, what has to happen is, you know, unless you're really willing to be a pioneer and and subject your establishment or establishments, plural, to risk of you being the anomaly. Like if I decide to pay all my people minimum wage without a tip credit in the state of Florida, I'm the anomaly, but I also have to charge more for my food. Otherwise, it comes out of my pocket. Yeah. Now, a little bit can come out of my pocket. I'm good with that. Yeah. But I'm not good with all of it coming out of my pocket. Yeah. So some, somehow the prices need to go up. Okay. So right? this is what I – yeah. Right? right and there. so that has to be the whole industry at one time. So raising their prices. Raising together. their pr- – well, raising the wage and then consequently raising the prices. Yes. To, to, so, to offset that wage increase. And yes, that will cause an inflation like everywhere. You'll never get an in-out burger for five – double-double for 535 again. Time, yes. But at the same time, I think that it's beyond – it's a cultural issue beyond like where are our priorities as a country? Where are you spending your money on things like, like superficial things or the food that you're putting into your 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 body? The the people this industry employs, I think the second most people behind the healthcare industry. Yep. Where are you as a citizen putting your money to to give security to more people? Like how are we dispersing wealth? And food is life, dude. Food is culture. Food we evolved to be what we are because of our pursuit of food. It's a part of us. You know what I'm saying? It should be a higher priority in people's budgets. Well, well, I think it is a high priority in a lot of people's budgets. The truth is, but, but no one wants to be the first person to put their toes in the pool, in that pool. Yeah. You know, we, we tried it here when we first started, we ran it for six months that way. And it, it, we couldn't push our prices. You know, I have a value proposition in this restaurant that I want to achieve. I want this place to, I want truly Italian food and drink to be a place where people come twice a week, not twice every three months. 
And so there's a price point I want to hit, period. And if we exceed that, we're not us anymore. You know, like if I took this and put it into L.A., where minimum wage is 15 an hour, right. I would have to charge $5 more per, per plate yep. in order to get to the same place I am now, yeah. which is really kind of important. We're no longer truly Italian food and drink. We're truly something at that point. Yeah. But we're not the, we don't have the same value proposition. Yeah. So really, almost it needs to be legislated. Right. So, it can, so everybody can at do it at the same time. time. Yeah. Because, right? because of, see, I think what would have happened, I think what's changed a lot about the industry, and it's more of like as we move into the future, we live in a world where we're so connected, where information travels easier than ever before. This podcast, other resources, where leaders in the industry are sharing knowledge. And we're saying this is our standard. And I think what happened in the past is that we were in our own little um, silos. We're isolated from each other. We were competing against each other. We 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 didn't know what standard was, and like it was really about like, oh, what what should I charge for this burger? What are they doing down the street? Let's do twenty five cents less. Thirty years of that, you get people, you get the the Burger Kings and McDonald's of the world, because that's the only way you can sustain it. And I think what we've done is we've conditioned the consumer to think that a five dollar burger is normal, and when you see a fifty $15, burger. They're like, this is outrageous. No, that's the cost of food done right. Right. That's, right. that's the val- That's the cost. Right. You just, we just fucked up the food system so bad that we are, the consumer doesn't realize the value of food. No, that's true. It's funny you say that because we had a guest uh, write a review on Google about the restaurant that was complaining about our prices. I'm like, which we don't hear that a lot. But it's the, con- I think and it's I the- said, listen, you, you go in your car, you get in your car and you go to Chick-fil-A and you order a chicken sandwich, fries, and a beverage. It's fourteen dollars. You get you come into my restaurant and you get a bowl of pasta and a full salad, full bowl of pasta, and full salad at lunch for fourteen ninety five. You get to sit in this beautiful place. You're not sitting in your car eating in your lap, and you get served. Yeah, right. I I don't see how you consider this to be an expensive proposition. Right. Yeah, but I think it's a consumer perspective that's just warped because we warped it. The industry warped it. Yeah, because um, McDonald's has a dollar menu. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, but I think it, it comes down to I believe this, and you can disagree. Feel free to disagree. But I think the the industry has to go to more of a place of educating the consumer. Like this industry has to take. The, we we for the longest time reacted to the consumer. We need to be proactive with the consumer and say, listen, we're in a bad place. Our the economy is in a bad. Like if we're going to change things, it, it's going to take us educating you. Let you know what the value of food is collectively. I think collectively. So I don't disagree, but I think that's a, hard that's to a, do. That's a heavy lift, yeah. right? And we got the, the, the lift is that everything has to flow to one time. <laughs> yeah. The real lift is yeah. legi- it's got to be legislated, and it, may, it means everything will lift at the same time, mm-hmm. and there'll be no no yeah. al- no alternative because the McDonald's of the world or or the Chick Fil A's or the Panera's, whatever they are, are going to have to. Elevate also yeah. at the same time. And I think we forget that America was created in, in hospitality. It was it was created in bars. It was Certainly. created in the, this this country was literally built on pubs. Right. If you were gonna if you wanted to build a restaurant in your like if you or not sorry if you wanted to create a town, it was a rule that you need to have a pub. Well, that's because of the British. <laughs> yeah, it was literally before a church, before a post office, yep, before yep. a town hall. You needed a pub. Yep. And that's because that it was the, that's what communities built on. We come together, public house, you know? And I think we need to remember what we're what this industry is about. It's, a, it's about change. It's about revolutions, you know? And I think we need to reconnect with our responsibility a little well, bit. Well, and it's about hospitality, and yeah. you don't get that when you're sitting in your car eating in yeah. a 
on a paper, yeah. on a piece of paper. Yeah. So we we can we don't have to revisit this conversation later. But uh, thank you for being willing to go into that now. And I think now is actually a really great time to take our first break to thank our sponsors. And we'll be right back to talk about your time at the Cheesecake Factory. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals. Recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. We're back. And we haven't really dove deep into the Cheesecake Factory yet. You said uh, you helped develop their first large menu. You were the uh, procurement of their procurement department. I'm not sure what you meant. I was typing fast trying to make notes of the things you did in a new restaurant opening. So, Yeah, I was I was in charge of everything that w- that had food attached to it, right? And also <laughs> restaurant opening. So I developed the first the first large menu. Um, I don't know if I should be excited about that or if I should like give you a punch on the shoulder. Like, what were you thinking with that? Well, we, were, we knew what we were thinking and, yeah. and in those days. We knew what we wanted to become when we were really becoming the Cheesecake Factory. What did you want to become? We wanted to become a yuppie coffee shop. Okay. You know, you go to a coffee shop in New York or a diner and you get a you get a 17-page menu with everything on it from omelets to a BLT to meatloaf and pot roast yeah. and and some sort of killed <laughs> fish. Yeah, really. Some fish that's cooked into oblivion. So you're a consultant today. Uh, I am. Would you ever advise somebody to do that? today no actually <laughs> we would never do it in, in those days yeah. you know we but it was juxtaposition very interesting yeah. because when before we went public in 1982 tga fridays was looking at us to acquire us and dick rivera was the ceo of of uh tga fridays at the time and after they toured the four restaurants we had he said no nah, we can't we can't do it because a if you knew what you were doing you would know that you could only screw this up. And if you didn't know what you were doing, you'd really just screw this up. Yeah, it's so, such a, I mean, I can't right? imagine it. And so, you know, but we, I kind of developed a mechanism for replicating all of that. What and was that mechanism? How did you do it? Well, it was, it was a lot of trial and error. I was in the kitchen for the better part of nine months when we first put the new menu in. And, I mean, that includes, 
you know, the prep kitchen and the, and the cook line. And I had to basically figure everything out before we could grow this company, right? And put um, a mechanism in place that could be replicated, right? So we were successful enough to be able to do that. And, and then we grew it. And, yeah. then, and by the time I had reached 31 restaurants, I was like, all right, you know, I kind of think I'm done. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious like to know more about how you actually, would, I mean, I don't know if there's intellectual property behind that, if we're allowed to even talk about it. Um, but I'm also wondering if I want to get into it because I just would never advise anybody to have that big of a menu ever. But like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, no, you uh, you wouldn't. If you were <laughs> yeah. in your right mind, you yeah. really wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, what are the reasons why you wouldn't want to do that? Well, c- cost is one thing, and that's not just the food cost. Meaning, if you don't cross utilize a bunch of different ingredients, which mm-hmm. Cheesecake Factory does, and they do very well, mm-hmm. if you don't do that, you're going to have you know, if you go in any one of the restaurants, you know that there's 17 cooks on the line as well, mm-hmm. in, at volume. Yeah. So there's a lot of cost involved in that, mm-hmm. right? And in all of it. So labor, cost of goods. Labor, cost of goods. Training. Tra- well, training is part of labor, but yeah. Yeah. And turnover. Yeah. Right? Because it's a burn. Yeah. You work, you're a, cook, a line cook at Cheesecake Factory. You work in the night shift. You walk on the line at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You're, you got a full wheel of tickets at, in those days. Yeah. Now you got a full KDS, k- yeah. kitchen display screen. And you're cooking balls out until you're done for the night. Yeah. You know, it's not like the... That's not like going to Applebee's and cooking. Yeah. What was Cheesecake's evolution while you were there? Like, paint a picture of where they were at two locations and at the transformation over 31 openings. Well, so interestingly enough, the corporation, right, we didn't have an office at all until, like, until the year before I left. Mm-hmm. So we all had our files in our cars, in the trunks of our cars. And that's what do you kind mean of your files. Like, your, yeah, like employee files oh, and gotcha, gotcha. notes that we would take about uh, you know whatever we were working on at the time we yeah. had files there yeah. was file cabinets right yeah. we'd have a file box in the back of our cars <laughs> and whatever restaurant we were at that day was where we worked that was our that was our, our became our office yeah. right and honestly that was a really beautiful thing and it, and it and to me it sent a message to everybody else that there's no uh, differentiation really between the people that might be considered quote unquote corporate and the people that were actually doing the work in the in yeah. the restaurants yeah but we were with the GMs almost every day right yeah. seven days a week um, so that's how we started. What we finished was we had a corporate office and, and that's also kind of, after we went public is kind of where the culture really changed for the, in my opinion. That's for, around the time you left, right? No, no, I left. So we went public in September of 1992 that's right. and I left in 96. Got it. Got it. Um, so was it, was that four year transition? Like, did it kind of suck the life out of you? Uh, you could say that. Yeah. You could and, say and that. In what ways? Um, it was a tough culture to work in. It was a, it was a culture that, you know, we had GMs that had kids who, who had to work weekends that couldn't see their kids on the yeah. weekends, you know, and there was never going to be any end in sight to that. And I could only really take that and having to talk to, I'm the one that had to talk to them eye to eye, face to face. And how'd that feel? It was, it was, it, honestly, it was, it was, it was miserable and, and debilitating yeah. and debilitating for them. Yeah, and your job's on the line. They're telling you to do this. It's coming from the top down, I'm sure. Well, they're not telling us to do anything, but we know we couldn't do, which is give a GM a weekend off, right? And because we're busy. Look, at the end of the day, we're busy. Yeah. And, I mean, on a typical weekend day, we would do fifty dollars or $60,000 in sales on a a good weekend day, right? I mean, they're getting days off, but it's Monday and Tuesday. Right, right? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And their kids are in school in those days, right? Most kids that had school-age kids, most parents who had school-age kids. So... 
it just became to the point where I got, I, you know, honestly, I got tired of fighting. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly enough, you know, there, you know, look, there's certain entrepreneurs that are really successful, and David Overton has been really successful. But there's also a certain part of them, those people, that can be myopic in a certain way when they're only really what do you mean by myopic. It's a very one dimensional. Word. They yeah. look at what they're only what their focus is and what yeah. they're interested in, and what's circulating around them or swirling around them is of no interest. And I'm not saying David's like that all the time, but he was he was certainly like that at various times when we would come to him trying to make yeah. our culture. Well, kind of move forward. I think it's also important to point out that relativity is everything in relative to the industry. Then that was standard working those hours. If you're a busy restaurant, it was, if you're in the industry, it was expected of you. This is the expectation. You know what you're getting involved. Right. If you take this job. Right. And that was kind of, that was the culture of the industry. We work hard. So right. like, so like relative. For, so when he's coming up and he's building this business during that time, that was the state, that was the stat, this, the, the, uh, What's the word? I'm the status quo. Status quo. The standard. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And and look, defense, we all worked. Yeah. You know, we all worked. Shoot, we all worked seven days a week at a lot of the time. And I mean, I remember having meetings. You know, server meetings at Marina Del Rey. You know, getting out at three o'clock in the morning on a Friday night after closing and having a nine a.m. meeting and me sleeping on the beach in a, in a sleeping bag uh, in front of the factory beachfront there. <laughs> you know, because so I could be on time for the meeting, yeah. right? So we. Look, we all, and everybody to a person, Not this is not just about me, by the way, everybody to a person gave everything they had to that experiment, yeah. right? Everything they had to that experiment. It was a great run. It didn't end for me the way I wanted it, what I would have liked it to, because I decided, I met the woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life with, and I knew I was never going to be able to cultivate a relationship with her if I kept going on that, if I was still on that treadmill. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so I gave up probably millions of dollars in in future stock earnings, yeah, for having a life and having a wife. And any regrets? No, not a one, not a one. Good. My life changed so much for the better after after I left that job. How? Everything. Everything felt lighter. Everything felt lighter. I was more in control of because I was the face of the company in a lot of in a lot of ways. I had a what lot was of your title. Senior Vice President, and I had I had a lot of opportunities out yeah. there. Now, did I select all the right ones? Maybe not, yeah. but I I had enough to be able to say I tried this, I tried this, I did a couple of startups. I'm very happy with the way that all that occurred, and then and then I ended up with you know with Blackstone in 2004. So yeah. it wasn't that far between me leaving Cheesecake Factory and being with Blackstone. 96. So there was what? So 8, eight years. years. 8 yep. years. Yep. Um I want to talk about the 8 years and then Blackstone, sure. but you, you did say that you, there were some MBA elements of the Cheesecake Factory. Most of your MBA was earlier than that. You learned a, a lot of what not to do, but any like specific like I don't know lessons or things you can pay for to the listeners that you garnered from the time. Well, I, yeah, what I learned a lot about was what I call deterministics. What's that? Which is time and motion, right? Deterministics. Deterministics. Time, time and motion. The time study of in time. motion? No, time and motion. Time and motion. Thank you. Which is how people work, how they flow, how things flow. How, you know, I don't know if you ever saw the movie The Founder. Yes. So you remember when the McDonald brothers were in the, yeah. were in the parking yeah. lot with the, with the chalk? Yeah. That's... The first example of deterministic. So, so it's de- like I'm turning around. What's it, what's what's here? What do I grab? Is it within ear sh- within me 
being able to reach my distance or do I have to move a step forward? Yeah. And is that taking me away from doing X, Y, or Z? I mean, deterministics is all about flow and, and time and motion. And that's the big, one of the biggest things I learned. To produce that menu with that speed at that price point, with that food cost, everything is about really is time and motion. Yeah. Right? So the goal is to reduce the amount of uh, movement between objectives. Yeah, and, and, and also to make the production of everything a little bit easier. Maybe be able to need less people. Yeah. yeah. Right? Right? If, if For example, if Cheesecake Factory could it's go support. from 17 cooks down to 12 yeah. because they organize things a little bit differently. I'm not saying they can or should. But if they could, uh, that you know, over two hundred restaurants, how many billion? How many billion dollars is that in labor over a ten-year period? Mm. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, if we're not evolving, just naturally evolving to a, a more svelte way of operating, we need to be looking at those kinds of opportunities. Yeah. Right? So, give us three. Nuggets, three missed opportunities that most restaurateurs getting started just don't realize. Like, you know how, like, just like, like, what deterministics? Three little things you can do that most restaurateurs are just not doing that are so simple that will just make them their businesses so much more. Well, depending on where you are, so those in in descending order or ascending order depends on where you are because of what, like, for example, we have a tip credit here in Florida, right? So one is. Casual dining, not fine dining, but casual dining restaurants should be all using QR code ordering and okay. should be reducing the number of servers on the floor. Okay. Okay? That's the first thing. And now in Florida, servers are the least expensive labor we have. Yeah. Right? So maybe that's not so the case in Florida so, and maybe the states that still have a tip credit. What right? are the biggest arguments? I know we asked for three things, but before we move on to the other two, what are the, what's the biggest argument against that that you can counter argue? Guests don't want to use it. So what's the counter argument? The counter argument it's only the older guests that don't want to use it. <laughs> and help them. Yeah. Help yeah. them to use it. Yes. Right? Have it you, doesn't mean you don't have anybody on the floor. Yeah. Help help them to either use the technology or give them a tool instead of, where yeah. they can not use the technology and still be able to place their order. Instead of giving every server five to six tables, give every server ten to twelve. Yeah, ten to twelve, ten, ten but to 12. they're doing less lifting. Right. Yeah. Right? Uh, secondly, and this is like a, such an easy one. But it's the biggest no-brainer for me. And I changed this at Cheesecake Factory very early on. Uh, I changed it at Bla- in our hotels at Blackstone, Blackstone Real Estate Partnership early on. But we changed our work week. So our work week is not a Monday through Sunday work week. Now, you may say, what's the big deal? Yeah. We're, we're actually on a, in some of our businesses, Wednesday through Tuesday or, or Thursday through Wednesday. The reason is, is the weekends are where we're busiest. Yeah. That's when all the overtime wages are incurred. On Friday and Saturday and Sunday, it's a lot easier to send people home or call them off on a Monday or Tuesday than it is to call them off when you're your busiest. Yeah. So we've changed our work week and our paydays from the typical Monday through Sunday to Thursday through Wednesday, so we can have our overtime fall on a Monday where I can send. I say, you know what? I don't need you tonight. Ah. I don't I need see. you today. You, Take the day off. You're you're approaching overtime. So you, I don't need you. You take you use the majority of your demand during the busiest time, and then right. Monday, Tuesday, boom. That's a little. How does that fall into the world of deterministics? I guess it's it doesn't yeah, it, it doesn't okay. really fall into deterministics. Okay, it's, but it's, it's still a great little friggin' nugget, man. No, it's it's well. So if you calculate what I saved Cheesecake Factory when I made that call, which I by the way I was fought. It was 
it was a huge fight, yeah. but I ended up getting it done. Yeah. Um, if you take that and you multiply it over, I've been gone since 1996. So what, yeah. 27 years I've been gone, right? Right? You take that 27 years and multiply that over overtime savings, it's, it's also probably hundreds of millions of dollars. Damn. How right? did the employees feel about this? They don't, it doesn't affect they them. They didn't know? They don't care. Okay. No, they, they know. Yeah. They know. They yeah. know when the schedule gets posted. They know when they get paid. Yeah. They get paid on Wednesday instead of Friday. Or Tuesday instead of Friday. All right. They they all know. Got Nobody it. there's no no secret to any of that. There's nothing underhanded or or non transparent about yeah. it whatsoever. All right. Third In number. our handbook it says our work week, our legal work week is Thursday through through Wednesday. They're not gonna connect the dots. Basically. They may, but yeah. it's not, it doesn't matter to them. They're getting yeah. paid. They're still getting yeah. paid for two weeks. It yeah. doesn't. It doesn't matter what day it, it ends on. I mean, that is brilliant. Though. I never heard that. That's the first time that I've heard that on the show. So I love that. Um, so what is the third nugget? The, th- the third thing that you you garnered from this experience that you think our listeners can benefit from? Well, that's something I have to think about a little bit. The first two nuggets were pretty easy. Um, the third nugget would be to, I guess, to really kind of shelve your ego and put it aside when when you don't really understand or if you don't understand what's going on why certain things are happening to put your ego to the side and be able to say help me you know i i was i was at a a company yesterday that asked me to join their board and i was listening to the principal and the company kind of talk about what he's created and then one of the investors said to me afterwards, so what did you think? I said, well, I think he's going to be a little bit hard to work with because mm. he knows everything. And when I mentioned to him that his commissary was laid out wrong, he was like, no, no, it's, it's really not. And I'm like, well, I know how to build commissaries. I've done it before. And I'm telling you, you need an in-dock and an out-dock. You need production in the middle. You need walk-ins on either side. Blah, blah, blah. I went through the whole thing. Yeah. And he just looked at me like I had two heads. Like I, he didn't know what I was talking about. So you're talking about the flow of food from in to out. You want it to move in one direction. Right. I want it to move yeah. in one direction. I, and I don't want crossover. Got it. Right? Um, so I think that a lot of people in this business are like stuck in this is what I know. This is what I know how to do. And this is that, that's why people aren't using QR codes for their, for their ordering right now. That's why they, ha- they didn't shrink their menus when the pandemic occurred and, and inflation was killing food prices. And they couldn't get any people to cook. But they kept their menus the same size. Yeah. You know, because they only know what they know to a certain degree. And, you know, what I, the one thing I, I can say about myself, good, bad, or indifferent, I'm a student. Mm. And I'm, I've been a student. And I'm always going to be a student. I want to know what I don't know. Tell me what I don't know. Yeah. Please tell me what I don't know. That's why going to Europe as often as I do, because, you know, they're so far ahead. They've had pay-at-the-table technology for 30 years in Europe. <laughs> you know, we yeah. just got it because we had a, pan- we had a pandemic. we had to. Because right? We were because we had to, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, their concepts are so far ahead of ours, yeah. right? They're doing different things. Yeah. So I want to see, like, I rarely eat at the same restaurant twice, unless it's my favorite pizza place or sushi bar, and, and, or I own it. Um, and... But I so I eat out a different place every night. Like I'm in New York tomorrow. I'm I'm going to four restaurants tomorrow and Friday that I've never been to before, yeah. right? Because I want to know what I don't know. I want to yeah. see what's next. Yeah. You know, I I prided myself and you know, I I about you. I prided myself on like using products, undiscovered products that people never heard of before. That and I was like the Terrace Major, which is a muscle uh, a muscle in a in a steer that. 
you know, I was, I was the first one to use that in a, in a real restaurant in the United States. Now everybody's using it, yeah. right? And flat iron steak, same thing. Yeah. I was the first one. I, I, w- I was with a, a fourth generation butcher. She showed me what she was cutting. I'm like, what is that? And she told me what it was. I said, I want that. Let's use that, right? You know, the, at that t- time, the price was like $4 a pound. Now yeah. it's nine fifty, right? Yeah. So um, it's, it's, for me, it's all about learning what I don't know. And, yeah. and, and being a student... Is really important. I love to me. that that mentality of being a student, and even with the show. Like I, when I started the show, like I was like, I don't. I had like a lot of imposter syndrome. I'm like, who am I to start a, a restaurant business podcast? Right? I I don't know anything. But I it was like, well, and I, I remember hearing somewhere like there's different personas you can take on if you're looking to be a host of a show or start something, or if you if you're trying to like I don't know. There's different. Like you can be the hero, you can be the, the student, they say, you can be the, there's different like titles, but I was like, I really resonate with the student. And the, the beautiful thing about, about identifying as a student and accepting this idea of being a student is it, I feel like it opens up so many doors. If you approach people and you just say, hey, like I'm interested in what you, what you know, I want to learn from you, uh, I'm a student, like it, if you say, hey, I'm going to approach you and I'm your competition – then people are like, I'm not going to tell you anything, but like, I'm just here to learn. It, it, it puts like this blanket of like, I don't know. It just gives you like passes to get into like, to like, Oh, it does actually. Like I just, ha- but also funny. you never stop learning. And that's the thing. If you identify as a student, you never stop learning right. and you can't stop learning. Right. And even to this day, people are like, why do you still consider yourself a student? I'm like, I'm always going to be a student at restaurant stop. That is the point. We're here to go to people who know more than we do about specific things. And we're going to ask questions. We're going to learn. We're all here to learn. It's a very powerful mindset. It is. I actually had a conversation with the CEO of uh, of a large company based in the Northeast last week about their QR code system. Yeah. I had read an article about them. I called them. I said, I, can I spend a half hour with you on the phone? I want to find out how you're kind of doing this and the success you've had with it, right? He's like, yeah, let's talk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's like... What'd you learn? I learned a lot. I, lear- <laughs> I learned a lot that I know that I'm going to do it here. Can you share that process? Is no. Is it too much? Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, well, no, it's actually... Yeah, I could share the process. The process is... Is, but what, the way they're doing it is is certainly very forward thinking, yeah. and we're gonna we're gonna mimic part of that. I mean, we have a bigger menu than they do, so it's gonna be a little bit harder for us to do it. But yeah, they they you either order from a QR code or you get a piece of paper and you can check off what you want and hand it to a a service leader on the floor. Yeah, right. They'll ring it in for you. Food runners bring you your food or your drinks. There is a hostess. You get seated. It's not like a fast casual. Like it's not the Chipotle yeah. concept, which by the way is great, but it's not what this is. Yeah. And they pay their people. They tip pool. They automatically gratuitize every table. Yeah. They tip pool everybody but the server, the service leaders. They get paid a salary and benefits and incentives. Yeah. They're like the next level of managers. Yeah. I mean, it's a great little program that he put together, and. His people like it, but even more importantly, his people like well, it. Well, it, it bounces. There's a lot of just like inequality between front of house and back of house. Like, there is. This takes care of the it. average wage in his restaurant is twenty three dollars an hour. That includes the dishwashers. Wow, that's right? awesome. And not include this doesn't include the service leaders because they're on salary. Yeah. So the tip pool, the eighteen percent, gets split amongst everybody else in the restaurant. That's awesome. Everybody has a base wage of like twelve an hour. Yeah. And then the tip pool goes goes up to eleven dollars an hour. Yeah. Beautiful stuff, man. Um, we're getting so much gold from you. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Thank, <laughs> Thank you so you. much. Uh, so let, let's talk about 1996 to 2004. Uh, lots of failed ventures. You, you did different things. Yeah. Like hovering over this time, like is there one like, or like two experiences that you think we can garner the most lessons from? From 96 to 2000. Well, shortly after I left Cheesecake Factory in 96, I, I found it very quickly what I didn't know how to do. 
That's, I think that's one what, of my... What did you not know how to do? Well, like I wrote a business plan for a concept I wanted to roll out. And now I'm looking at it 20 years later or however long it was, 27 years yeah. later. I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, how embarrassing was that business plan? Pro forma wasn't quite there? Right? No, everything was just so home haircut. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just wasn't, like didn't feel like a marketing piece, right? Yeah. And and so again... The, the information it, was there, but it wasn't presented well? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I was taking it to investment bankers and they were like... <laughs> right? So I learned uh, very quickly what I didn't know how to do. And then I, I adjusted, right? Yeah. Um, but look, we did, I, did, I opened three restaurants with Kevin Costner, Robert Wagner, um, Freddie Couples, and Jack Nicholas called The Clubhouse. Um, that was an interesting project. Um, and, and it was very much a, um, a clone of Cheesecake Factory. Actually, The Clubhouse in Oak Brook, Illinois, which was our first one, is still there and it's still doing huge volume. Um, so I'm really proud of that experience. Um, and I did a lot of consulting work for large and small companies. I, I started Smoky Bones for Darden Restaurants during that time. Oh, wow. Um, and 20 years later, the company that bought them hired me to, redo, to, re, to fix it again. <laughs> yeah. um, so during that time, it was mostly consulting work. And um, With Smoky Bones, uh, that was one of Ned's concepts. No, 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 no. Uh, no, Bugaboo Creek was was Ned Grace's oh, that's right. steakhouse, uh, casual steakhouse. Smoky Bones was, was a barbecue restaurant that Darden hired me as a consultant to develop Got for it. them. And um, so I did I did a bunch of those consult those type of, of consulting jobs, and it was fun and and it, um, but it wasn't fulfilling really. At yeah. the end of the day, contract was over and we, we were on to the next thing. Yeah. And I was really looking for something more solid, which is when Blackstone kind of called me after they bought the Boca Resort Group in December of 2004 to join them. I was ready to go back into the quote unquote corporate world. Got it. So, any so this is 2004. Any other lessons about what you did not know that you had to learn the hard way? Well, there was a whole lot of things. You know, I'd never you know I'd never seen a lease before either. Right? I I'd never done any of the kind of quote unquote the administrative part of running a company you knew the four walls you didn't know outside of that well I knew a little bit outside of okay. it en- enough to structure a purchasing department and all that but as yeah. far as like really running a company and running a business and and really running a business and being accountable to that that's yeah. the other part that's the third nugget okay is the accountability and being accountable to being it. accountable to the business and being accountable to your people whether they're investors they're your guests or they're your employees team members whatever it's that's the third nugget it's it's about you being entirely accountable and responsible look there's so much risk and that goes along with opening a restaurant right there's so much for me so much trepidation i remember the first day the night before my first day as gm at bodega i was so scared i, w- I mean my girlfriend and i went to the beach and sat on the beach at night i was up on the beach till 5 a.m trying to sort out my thoughts about i mean i was doing the job already Right, yeah. but now I had the title and the keys, and it was like, "Am I going to be able to do this?" Mm-hmm. You know, and then you, and then, so, and then you kind of do it, and you you've been doing. Oh yeah, this is what I was doing yesterday, right? Yeah, right. But th- so there's so much trepidation. You know, when we opened High Dive in, in January of 2020, uh, right before perfect timing, right before the pandemic. You know, I hadn't been in an independent restaurant in, in quite some time, meaning worked in, owned, or whatever. And I'm here. I was a major uh, shareholder in this thing and managing it at the same time. And you kind of never really know how it's going to go. You don't know if people are going to come. 
You think they are. You think you've got a good location. You think you got the right chef. You think you got the right decor and the right menu. But you don't really know if people are going to come or not. There's so much risk attached to it. And so much, for me, so much trepidation of how is this going to go? Is this going to go well? Is this going to go the what way is, you want it to? I'm not completely familiar with the definition of trepidation. What do you mean by that? Put it in another word. Anxiety. Got it. Anxiety Got it. over how is this going to go. Got it. Right? And when we opened High Dive, the first night we were open, first couple nights we were open, I'm in the dining room. I call my wife. I said, this is the best feeling I've ever had in my life. You know, when you're talking to people and you see smiles on their faces, your staff is happy, the food's flowing out of the yeah. kitchen, the drinks look beautiful. The- I still get anxiety before every interview. I'm not <laughs> going to lie. Almost a thousand now. Every trip. The, the couple days before going on a road trip, I'm like, is this going to be good? Are we going to get good interviews? Because I really don't do a lot of research onto who I'm talking to because I let the industry decide. And I'm always worried. Like, like, and this trip has been a banger, man. Like, You're a banger. Everyone's a banger. And it always works out. It almost always works out. If your intentions are good and you do the work and you're learning constantly and growing constantly, it almost always right. works out. Right. But you know, you're you know, when you rely on your really kind of yourself and your instincts, if you don't have a moment of sphincter tightening, <laughs> um, when it, that goes along with that, you, you're not swallowing you, your seat. Huh? <laughs> yeah. You're not really feeling the entire brunt of it. You know, we did this truly. I mean, I taste, we tasted all, we, I developed the menu. We developed the recipes with, with a chef that I hired during the pandemic from Hawaii that came here and, and came over to high dive and worked in the kitchen there and developed the recipe. I said, this is the menu I want to do. This is, this is how I wanted to taste. This is how I wanted to look. I'll come back in two weeks. Let's see what you got. And we worked through all the tastings and we tweaked a few things and all that. But then you put it into the restaurant and you never know if people are going to like it, mm. especially when it's new. Yeah. You don't know if people are going to like it, you know, you don't know if it's going to come out well on that first Friday night, you know, and or the kitchen's going to get inundated and you made a mistake designing the kitchen. I mean, again, new restaurant, new concept. Did you make a mistake designing the kitchen? Did I make a mistake designing the kitchen is this or all, the bar? Is this all stemming off of accountability? Well, it is and it isn't because, look, it's about failure. Yeah. It's a, or avoiding failure. Was that the word you use? Accountability. Did I, did I, that's what you well, said. Well, I earlier. used accountability. The third and, nugget was. Yeah, third nugget is about yes, is about being accountable. About yeah, and, but that's what this is more about. About avoiding failure, right? And or or the feeling that you might have, or how do you respond to making the tweaks that need to be made in order to make it work better, mm. and or make it taste better, or yeah. make it work well. You know, we we've I've I think I wrote forty five menus in the first year we were open here. Wow. Tweaking this this price, this verbiage, this item has to be I mean, you you have to be able to have your hands on the dials all the time mm-hmm. to make to make it really as perfect as you can make it mm. for a fourteen dollar bowl of pasta. Yeah. Right? I mean that's what I want. I want yeah. it to be a, a perfect fourteen dollar bowl of pasta. Yeah. Right? Or or pizza. Um so that's the thing for me, the, you know, is about if you don't feel even the littlest tinge of, holy crap, I could fail. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's what drives me or drives other people. So, so maybe I'm, I'm still kind of missing. What is the nugget about accountability? What did you learn about being more accountable? How did you, how did you change the way you do things to be more accountable? Well, because, you, because there's three factions in any business, right? You have guests. You generally have partners or investors, even though in this case, my partners are, are small shareholders. Yeah. And you have team members. You have to be accountable to all three factions. You have to, you have to make balance. The reason that, that my management company is called Equal Measure Partners, it's about balancing 
decision making amongst the three factions equally. So, you know, like like you, you know, if you had a three legged stool and you shorten the leg, yeah, one leg, the, the, stu- the stool even. falls yeah. over, yeah. right? Same thing with a business. Yeah. Right? So dividing your attention between the three the three legs and those are again Well, it's not dividing your attention. It's it's again equally to me, it's equally balancing all factions, all three factions when it comes to almost every single decision. Right? Every decision. And those three factions like, again are your guests, yep. right? Your team members, yep. your staff, and your stakeholders, your partners, if yep. you have them. Got it. Right? And if you miss one of the... Sounds a little other, like enlightened hospitality. Sorry? It sounds a little like enlightened hospitality. That idea well, of hospitality to every everybody. Well, it is hospitality because yeah. that's everybody that's coming into your world. Yeah. If you're in the restaurant business or the hotel business, that's all you have. Yeah. I mean, you have the physical part of it. doesn't change that often. Yeah. Everything else can change pretty often, yep. right? Yep. So... So I think it's I think we can move on to your time now at Blackstone, right? Yeah. Was, yeah, Blackstone, right? Sure. Yeah. Um how did your like what what would you say that was two thousand four, right? The past yep. nineteen years of your life have been with this this organization. Yep. How has that evolved? How what what who are you today? What do you do today? Like like what does that look like? Who <laughs> who am I today? That's a good question. Well first of all, I'm a I'm a really proud husband and father. Of four boys and, and a beautiful, amazing wife. Um, and that's the first thing I am today. Okay. Secondly, what I am today is I'm uh, much more cognizant of the way the, the entire finance world works um, and the deal-making world works because of my exposure with Blackstone over those that period of time. And I'm also as I'm, I'm the best consultant I've ever been in my entire life as of this moment. Mm-hmm. And the things that I've learned, not just from Blackstone, but everything along this 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 rail this railroad of ours that I've learned, I have honestly the most supreme amount of confidence in my ability, our ability to be able to a create something compelling and beautiful, b fix something that wasn't, and maybe make it into something that was compelling and is compelling and beautiful, and b I know how to make a profit with the best of them and it seems like everything that I've touched recently has turned golden or at least it's a good problem at least platinum but (laughs) but but, you know because we pay attention to details this is a business of nickels and it's a business of details and if you take your eye off the ball for a minute you can lose your shirt here Mm. and we just don't take our eye off the ball yeah you know, we're, we're always managing all of this. So what does your, if we spend the next 10 to 20 minutes talking about something that you're uniquely positioned to talk to us about, that you want to talk about, like what would excite, like what, where, where can you add the most value with, with what you're doing today and the imprint you're making on the world today? Well, one of, one of the niches that we fulfill really, really, really well in the hotel and resort industry is what we call deep dives. Yeah. Well, how was that transition from ho- restaurants to hotel and resort? It was so, honestly, it was easier than I thought it was going to be. And honestly, interestingly enough, the hotel business is a lot easier than the restaurant business. Um, and what was, in the, well, in the hotel business, you kind of know when people are coming, people just don't show up at your door and say, I need a room. Tonight. Yeah. And they're giving you a bunch of information too. Right. right. And they're giving yeah. you a bunch of data. Right. Yeah. Um, at the restaurant business, you hope people are going to show up on a Monday night, right? Yeah. Um, 
hotel, you know they're coming. Yeah. Um, so it's easy to, from their five hundred dollar. A lot easier to plan for their arrival yeah. and what they're going to do when they're there. When you know they're coming, yeah. How many breakfasts am I going to do tomorrow morning? You can anticipate. That's really it. Reminds me of the Japanese approach to culture or hospitality of just anticipating needs. But when they're a guest, I feel like, and they give you all that information, you, you can learn about them. You can really get ahead of it, and plus, you have time to get to know them to to get ahead of things, right? To like listen and like really spend time with them. But anyway, keep going. So, we do these things called deep dives, yeah, which are which nobody seems to like to do, but we go into a hotel property or resort, depending on the size, anywhere from two to six days, and we immerse ourselves in everything, into everything, then we give them a report afterwards about what, where we think their upside is. Mm. And that's, that's about elevating product, profit, sales, culture, all of it. And, and then we help them over the next 90 days <coughs> transition to our plan. We write a smart, cheat, a smart plan for them give them a critical path and then we go forward and help them be more it ends up being getting them more profitable but it's not about cost cutting anybody can do that you can't yeah. but you can't cost cut your way to profitability so it's adding value too it's adding huge value to an asset yeah. we did a we did a interestingly enough for for a guy that used to work with me a guy that used to work with me is the head of asset management for um, a large real estate company now that yeah. has hotels and they were selling a hotel that we were retained by the buyer to assess prior to the acquisition and we found like in, in three days time we found like four million dollars in untapped profit potential and in a, in a sale that's selling for 15, a 15 multiple on EBITDA Right, that four million was worth sixty million extra dollars in the sale that they could have extracted had they paid attention to the operation prior to the sale. Wow, that's right. So that's kind of something that we've we pride ourselves on, and we're one of the few players in the industry that a does it and b likes doing it and b and c is good at it. So part of what you're doing too, do you invest in restaurants? Do you go out and try to find good investments and and like? grow those platforms is that part of what well that's i no i i only i only will invest in things that i create okay gotcha yeah. gotcha so um i mean anything else i mean i i just there's so many things i know you're such a wealth of, of knowledge and i don't want to take stabs in the dark i really want you to steer what you want to talk about and where you think you can add the most value like what what is on the table that we haven't taken off yet to, to leave with our listeners well I, I think we've covered a lot actually we have covered so much. um we've covered a lot and and again i think that you know, all of this is about focus and diligence and a little bit of creativity, but it's also about systems and systems implementation and maintaining those systems, right? Yeah. Because you always need to, any business needs controls in place mm-hmm. to be able to measure its profitability. And and you can't do it too far in arrears. In this business, you got to be radar forward, mm. right? You got to be able to know today today right now what your food cost is right now mm. right or your labor cost right now what tools are you using to know this information well we have we have a series of tools that we use um, we we use a software platform called restaurant 365 that gives us a lot of those tools and the other tools we bring in we you know we, we shop and we look at and you know I'm looking at a different potentially a different POS system for the next few restaurants we're going to do because getting away from toast huh possibly big move possibly everybody loves toast toast is 
Toast is a good POS system. You know, I, th- I don't think the future is in actually in POS systems at all, actually. What is the future in? Well, look, you already have cloud, cloud everything. Yep. I mean, we certainly we need a kitchen display system and a, and a remote printing system, but do you really need a POS to do that, or can't you just do it from your phone? Right. Why can't I place an order through my phone? Right. Why do I need a POS terminal to do that? So why do And pay them, pay them to process your credit cards, so which is I, expensive. Well, even if you're using your phone, you still have to use a processor, but you have more no, options. No, you process on the cloud. Okay. There's so, no processor. So you can eliminate the processing fees? Well, you can't eliminate all of them, but you okay. can certainly reduce them from whatever your percentage is with Toast or any other fixed, POS provider. Yeah. Look, everybody wants to be in the POS business these days, especially the credit card processors, yeah. right? Also, I'm like, why do we need? Why do we even need POSs going forward? We certainly we there's parts of the POS experience that we do need, but why do we need? Why do I need that terminal? Why yeah. do I need handheld terminals? Why can't I just do it from an iPhone or a, an Android? I don't have. A, well, if you were to ask Toast that question, what would they say? Well, they would come up with all kinds of reasons why not, but I'm telling you that that's the, the future is yeah. that there's not going to be POSs. Can you give this company some love, the company you're looking at? No, I'm not looking at anybody in particular, actually. Oh, well, you're just thinking I'm, about it. No, we're, we're, we're out there shopping right now. Okay, interesting. And by the way, I've committed to Toast for the next few restaurants anyway. Okay. So this is, a long, this is not going to get there anytime soon. Got it. But Toast is, and, and by the way, Toast operates the restaurant very well. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that, that you're a student. You're constantly learning. You're constantly paying attention to the, the evolution of the industry. Yep. Like, where, like, what are you excited about now as far as these, this, this, these tools that you're leveraging to improve your systems constantly? Like, what is it? What's <laughs> so it's, it, it's funny you say that. Uh, so this is going to sound maybe odd, maybe not odd. But so there's a, an Israeli-based company called Kitchen Robotics okay. that owns a technology called a bistro it's spelled b-e-a-s-t-r-o okay which is a completely automatic cooking station for sauteed food so is it is it the is it what they're using at spice no boston different but it's similar is it induction burning rotating uh yes okay yes so how's it different well I, well, I don't know what they use at Spice okay. in Boston, so I'm sorry. No, it was MIT students that, that created a restaurant. It was like a, like a senior project that uh, I think uh, Danny Meyer invested. Was it Danny Meyer? Somebody invested in him. Uh, I think it was Danny Meyer. They just recently got acquired. Uh, I, I can't remember who it was, though. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so um, maybe I'm not that much of a student. So you're looking at robotics. <laughs> no, you're fine. So you're looking at robotics. Uh, I'm looking at robotics because you know the culinary bistros, the culinary part. Part of this is the hardest part, yeah, and the most expensive. Well, part. It, you're talking about using technology to replace the biggest expense, the pack of house. Yeah, part of, partly, yeah, partly. I mean, we're gonna have to have some hands on the food or in the food, yeah. But I would like eighty percent of it to be automated in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. There's a lot of companies that are doing some really interesting stuff out there. Was it? No, it wasn't. It was Sweet Green. Was it Tender Greens? It was Tender Greens that purchased Spice. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, because they're looking to implement that technology at the Tender Greens. That's what I didn't know that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, so uh, Spice Robotics out of MIT, so a bunch of students robotics. It was really interesting. But it sounds like Kitchen Robotics is doing the same idea using induction burners. You basically, you as the, the kitchen are basically just doing prep. You're feeding the machine. You place the order. The machine dumps into the, the, the bowl, yep. cooks, rotates. Yep. When it's done, dumps it, and then... You bring it out. I mean, correct, I'm correct. probably simplifying it too much. You did simplify it, but yeah. it's, you, you, that's exactly the idea. Yeah, cool. Um, and for pasta, that works out really well. 
What about inventory management? You're talking about inventory. I think you, said, you mentioned recipe management, inventory management, yep. uh, labor management. Like, where, like what, what is impressing you right now? Like, who's doing that right? What are the platforms? Uh, there's a bunch of platforms out there that are doing it right. We use Restaurant 365 for it, but you know, there's a bunch of software programs out there that you do, said you're supplementing Restaurant 365 with a couple other products. Like, where is Restaurant 365 falling short that you need to go outside of what they offer? Um, from a human resources perspective, they don't quite have. Honestly, they have a lot of bells and whistles for that. But uh, they don't have e-verify. What's e-verify? Verifying that someone that applies for, uh, for a job with you that their security card is valid okay. and it's not fake. Yeah, which is a huge, huge thing. Yeah, because you know there's fines for that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. So that's one thing that's missing from them. The rest of it, we're still. We just started with Restaurant 365, the first of the year. Yeah. So we're just. Kicking. Was it a challenge for you implementing Restaurant 365? Yeah. I hear a lot of people. Underestimate how much work it's going to be to get. That yeah, done. but we had a recipe that we had a database that we could export and then import into Restaurant 365 to begin with. So nice. we we had already built it. Yeah, so we were there. Are you using Compete or Restaurant 365? Because I know they're under the same Restaurant program. 365. Okay, cool, interesting. Um, any advice when it, when it comes to implementing a tool like that that you wish you had known? Yeah, make sure you know. Make sure you budget for how much manual labor goes into re- building the recipe database. How long did it take you? It's a, it's days. Yeah. Like days. Yeah. And I think that's a big piece of, if you're looking to, a lot of people are like, oh, like I'm just going to, I want to automate all this stuff. I want to buy one solution, one turnkey system that has all my solutions built into it. And I don't want to do anything ever again. If that's your mindset, just don't work in this industry. Cause there's still a lot of like all these systems. I, I'm feeling like I'm echoing a lot of my previous conversations right now. Restaurant 365, restaurant systems pro, whatever the platform, the, the enterprise solution platform is, it's just a checklist that's digital that holds you accountable to doing all the work. It's right. the framing. Right. Yeah. Right. I agree. Yeah. So anything else that we did not talk about that that's worth knowing? No, I think, you know, we have other, you know, there's other apps that we use also like Jolt or something like that for, how do you feel about Jolt? Somebody who's, that's it's good. I mean, it's not it great. evolving. Uh, it's not evolving fast enough. Yeah. Have you heard of Blanket? Yes. What do you think about Blanket? I don't know. I, I've heard of it. I don't yeah. know of it. Are know. you looking at any other checklist? Platforms? No, not no. not the moment. All right. I'm really loving this conversation. I want to ask you one more question before we go to the speed round. Sure. Um, we already talked about what the future looks like. We kind of spoke a little bit about that. Or actually, we didn't really. I am curious. Like, what what do you think the business model of the future is? Where are you putting your eggs? Uh, into a more fast casual format, but not fast casual. Elevated fast casual. What's what does that mean to be elevated That's fast casual? Hostess, so serve, more high touch, more high touch, and not, not an assembly line. So like a if a casual dining had baby with fast casual. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. I love that. So high touch but less labor. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Smaller footprint. Love it. Um. So inspire, empower, and transform the industry. That's my mission statement. We talked about how you've how the industry has transformed and where the industry needs to go. But how have you personally transformed? Who is Doug today versus the Doug that you were when you got started in this industry? How are you a better man? Well, I certainly have a lot more patience now than I ever have. Yeah. Um, I also know more. Mm. So I, and I've made enough mistakes as other people have to know what mistakes not to create again and not to do again. Yeah. So I think that's the biggest thing, you know, until you failed in this industry, until you failed in this industry, you don't know what failure is. What was the biggest failure you had in this industry? Um, we had a restaurant in Fort Lauderdale in 2002 where we had a commitment from an investor to come in and we uh, basically acquired the restaurant and then the investor backed out. Oh, so you're left with, we were left with very little funds to operate and we ended up having to sell, turn it around and 
was, it took us two years, but we ended up having to turn around and flip it. And that was very painful and very financially painful for me the as well. One thing you could have done to, to change that scenario outcome. Well, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have signed the agreement until, until I had the money. Yeah. Um, but I will tell you, until you've been on the on the corner, getting trying to get gas at twelve thirty at night. And you call your wife and say, "Honey, can you move five dollars into into our debit card onto our debit card so I can get gas to come home?" Yeah, that's and she normal. says, "We don't have five dollars <laughs> to do that." Yeah. Till you've been there, yeah, you haven't. You really don't know what what oh, yeah. like failure really right. is, right? Right. And so, you know what they say: what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Um, we moved on from that very quickly and rebounded very quickly, and we haven't looked back, honestly. Yeah. One more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to bust out a speed round. This episode is brought to you by Zinch. When you own a restaurant, a lot can happen suddenly, and the unexpected can be expensive. When you're short-staffed during the busy season, you can't delay hiring, and the slower seasons still come with bills to pay. When an appliance breaks down or new locations need more equipment, you have to work fast to keep the kitchen running smoothly. You don't have time to wait around for the traditional loan process to get the cash you need. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Zinch, a direct lender that gets businesses like yours. Since 2004, Zinch has made the financing process for small and medium-sized business fast, flexible, and inclusive with easy-to-understand solutions. If your restaurant is generating over $10,000 in monthly revenue and has been in business for over six months, Zinch can fund up to $250,000 in less than two days, so much faster than the traditional lenders. To apply, just fill out a simple application form and provide a copy of your four most recent Bank statements. It's that easy. No drawn out paperwork to keep track of and no lengthy waiting to see if you qualify. You'll get a response from Zinch in 24 hours. Plus, Zinch's specialists are just a phone call away. They'll guide you every step of the way to help you choose the terms that best fit your business's needs. Save yourself the stress of financing through a bank. Apply for Zinch today. Right now, Zinch is waiving application fees for my listeners. A value of $250. Go to financing that works.com to get pre-qualified and see how much financing you could get with Zinch. Don't wait. Go to financingthatworks.com today. Loans made or arranged pursuant to California finance lenders law license. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Perseverance. What is your biggest weakness? Perseverance. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Many times uh, strengths are your biggest. Uh, impatience. Impatience. What is one thing you ask, a question you ask, or a thing you look for when you're building your team? What can I count on you for? What are you looking for? I'm looking for people that can get it. What is your biggest challenge today? People. How are you overcoming it? People. What's, what do you mean by that? <laughs> um... Biggest challenge is people, and you gotta you gotta overcome that by by enriching, having an approach where you enrich people's lives. Mm. Right? This is my that's one of my things. I know this is the speed round, but that's no, really fine. enriching people's lives in the community where we are. I mean, I give our managers volunteer days off, you know, which most people don't do. I want to be part of a community. Yeah, I want us to be part of a community. I want to be in these communities and I want our people to feel like they're part of a community yeah. because it's so much bigger than us just the, yeah. as a restaurant like back to what we were talking about earlier like 
pubs, restaurants, they were the center of the community. Correct. They, they were the, the, the middle, like the spokes. Everything went to the center. It was Correct. the hub, you know? Correct. Uh, I think we could be better about getting back to that. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. A way to be, a way to act, a core value. A core value is being able to say you're sorry. Mm. I love it. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Something that's common within the four walls of the restaurants you work with, but not common throughout the industry. Um, that's a good question. We, I think we ask people to give us great Google reviews. <laughs> hey, it goes a long way. We do. We strive for five. <laughs> uh, See what, how easy that rolled off my tongue? Right. <laughs> uh, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? I think principles of leadership is like, is like the book Stephen Covey and yep. it was is in his day and in that day was really groundbreaking for me. Yep. I also think that good to great is one of those books where, you know, good is the enemy of great. Right. Right. And that's something that I fight with our, all of our people on all the time yeah. is we're going to be great. Yeah. Period. We are not going to be good. Yes. Right. I love that. And I'm not going to be happy until we're great. I love it. What is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Well, they don't take care of their people well enough. Yeah. Yep. I love that. We can put a period there unless you want, you really nope. want to add more. I right. think that's, there's a period there. Uh, what is one thing? piece of technology you recently adopted i know we talked a little bit about technology already so feel free to add a new one or echo something that you've recently adopted that's had a huge impact on communication efficiency profitability anything along these lines restaurant 365 and uh biggest element of restaurant 365 that you're most impressed with the inventory management and recipe management tool and the logbook awesome i like the logbook this is the last question we made it to the end my friend if you Come got on. the news that we would be, that you would be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be gone with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind. <clears throat> excuse me, that you could leave behind for the good of humanity in your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? Work hard. One. Don't look back. Two. Look forward. Three. Awesome. <laughs> Love it, man. Um, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Really, My you pleasure. were such a great interview. I know this was a last second interview. I think I reached out to you last week. Yep. We made it happen, and I'm so happy we did, man. You were really great. And um, on that note of you know trying to find the future guests, it was Burt Rappaport who introduced me to you. Yep. Uh, and I'm so happy he did. And I think that's the power of trust and speed of trust of just you know, going to people who you know are smart, who recognize success, who recognize good people. On that note, who do you respect and admire? And believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for me today. And if you can't think of just one, feel free to give me plenty because you're making my job easier if you do. <laughs> uh, I have to think about that. I have to think about that, especially down here. Yeah. Um, I have to think about that. All right. Well, I'll take a rain check. But that'd be yeah, great. I'll email you. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, email you. And how, how can we connect if we, I mean, you consult, you have services you provide, you have restaurants you, you're, you're a part of and running and yep. maybe you want to come join your team. What's the best way to connect? By email. And that is? Doug at nexthospitality.com. Uh, Doug, thank you so much, my man. Thank you. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. <laughs> thank you so much. Cheers. Eric, thank you. You bet. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guest today, Doug Zeif, for dropping gold all over the place. And man, I am loving this new approach uh, of unearthing these legends of the industry who aren't after accolades, who aren't after media, but are just badasses of the industry uh, who have a story to share and knowledge to share. And 
this approach of just going and talking to people and saying, who do you respect and you admire? Who, success recognizes success. It was Burt Rappaport who put Doug on our radar. Thank you, Burt. And uh, I can't wait to discover the next hidden gem out there with this approach. So if you guys are liking this podcast and you want more episodes just like this one, we do need your support. And there's a ton of ways you can support the show. One way you can support the show, which is a win-win in my opinion. If you're somebody who isn't a fan of the long format interviews, I do get a lot of feedback that people love the long format interviews, that there's substance, and I love it too. But if that's not for you, I understand. You can head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable, and we have much shorter versions of the episode over there. We're talking like 15 to 20 minute highlight reels of the big takeaways from every episode over there at YouTube. Uh, so if you haven't yet, head to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable, subscribe, and get those uh, short versions of the show we're also going to have the full feature episodes over there as well and we do uh the shorts too, youtube shorts so check it out subscribe thank you in advance and then you can also support the show through supporting our sponsors using our affiliate links and sharing this podcast with everybody and anyone you know and also something that i'm also trying to you know bring back to your awareness is leaving those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio, wherever you're listening to this. I love those reviews. I love the feedback, and it really helps us with getting our show uh, ranking as high as possible. So thank you in advance. If you did leave one of those reviews, uh, awesome. Thank you. And we can't say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who make this show possible. Thank you to Jared Parisi over at Sumadre Podcast for his editing and copywriting and thank you to sam from sav and sam.com uh for the videography the social media i'm grateful for my army it takes an army and we're kicking ass i love it that's it for today until next time peace out